I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. You know, if B612 Foundation working with asteroids didn't exist, I, I feel like the Long Now Foundation would have to invent it. Uh, because it is so much the kind of thing that we're trying to encourage in terms of long-term thinking, long-term action. And uh, one of our first speakers, actually, nine years ago, I think, was in this series, was Rusty Schweikert, uh, who introduced the subject of uh, detecting asteroids and thwarting the dangerous ones. And here we're checking in nine years later, his foundation, B612, uh, is not only alive and well, but doing, stepping up to a really major incremental uh, point. With another ex-astronaut, uh, Rusty Schweikert was with Apollo. Uh, Ed Lou's been up on the uh, Space Science Lab. And there's something about when these characters get off-planet, when they come back, they act out of some kind of planetary sense of responsibility, uh, which speaks well for the ongoing space program, because as more and more people get off-planet over the coming decades and centuries, they may well uh, step up, as these guys have, to planetary responsibilities. The scale of these projects to go outside the Earth's orbit and start looking at a level of detail that we haven't done before at basically uh, our whole solar system neighborhood looking for, in that frame of reference, tiny things, but tiny important things which, if they are successful in finding the dangerous asteroids and then heading them off, that's the case for this planet as long as humans are around and keep being able to send rockets and do gravity tractors and things like that. So this is like a major shift. Uh, and that's why I referred to it in the title as Anthropocene Astronomy. This is stepping up to planetary stewardship at a scale so vast, not only in space but in time, that I think we're still getting used to it. And one of the neat things about it is this very, very long-term project is being run by a guy with, I think, the shortest name in the world, Ed Lou. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Okay, so first off, I wanted to thank you for, for coming here tonight. It's a real pleasure to speak here. I have always loved the concept of the Long Now Foundation because at some level, somebody somewhere has to think about the very, very long-term problems. We can't all just be thinking about what's happening tomorrow. 
what's happening next week or what's, you know, the majority of people do need to do just that. But somebody somewhere needs to be thinking about the long-term problems because those are the things that really guide the long-term future of our civilization. And um, so, you know, I wanted to thank the, the, the organizers of Long Now for allowing me the chance to speak here. Um, also, I want to start with a little story first. Um, when I first became an astronaut, which was a thousand years ago, in 1995, um, they, they would bring in astronauts in classes. And we were uh, the class of 1995. There was 19 of us. And they used to bring in the old-timer astronauts who would come back uh, to sort of tell us things and just give us advice. And we, I had the privilege then of meeting, for the first time, Neil Armstrong. He came in and, uh, and you know, he just basically sat down and told stories with us. And he, and he, as a test pilot of everything from rocket vehicles to, you know, flying to the moon, he, he told us, he goes, you know what, he goes, he goes, here's the way I look at flying things, you know, when, when it comes to making decisions about things. If you're in an airplane or a rocket or whatnot, he goes, and, and there's an emergency that happens, you know, if it didn't kill you right away, you've usually got time to think about it. <laughs> and what he really meant by that was that the first thing, you know, he said the first thing you really need to do when, you, when something happens is to think about how long do I have to make a decision? I try and think ahead of just what is the next thing I got to do, okay? So that, in fact, is really what the Long Now Foundation is about. It is an attempt to think about not just, you know, how do I, you know, pay the bills next month or how do I, uh, you know, what do I got to do, you know, next week or even tomorrow. Um, not that you don't need to do that, but reserve those three or four brain cells to think about, you know, what's out there 50 or 100 years. So, uh, uh, that's, in fact, what we're trying to do. So, as Stuart said, you know, what is it that's really important on long timescales? And, and on very, very long timescales, the things that we find important today kind of recede off, and the things that are important on very long timescales include things like, well, what if our planet gets smacked like it has a thousand times in the past? So this is one of my favorite photographs that I took. I took it uh, while orbiting the Earth in 2003. Um, and it shows, uh, first off, for those who might think, well, that's kind of odd. You know, what, is it upside down or is it sideways? It's not, because if you're in space, there is no up or down. Um, so this is the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. And there's the moon over there, up in the blackness of space. It's actually uh, just about to set. And I like this because it sort of encapsulates one of the things that you really start to appreciate when you spend a lot of time up there looking down at the Earth. First thing you realize is that the Earth is incredibly beautiful and that it's the only Earth out there. It sort of dominates your field of view. And the second thing is when you look at the moon, you look at all these craters and you say, oh, you know, it's, it's immediately obvious that what created those craters, which are asteroids running into the moon, also hit the Earth. And because the moon and Earth are basically next to each other in space, whatever is hitting the moon, those things are also hitting the earth. And in fact, you can determine how, many, how often the earth gets hit by counting craters on the moon. And if you count those things, divide by the age of the moon, and account for things like the fact that there, uh, there's some complications in there, but basically it's not that much more difficult than that. It's actually a project that could be done by undergraduates. 
You can have them with looking for counting craters and, and dividing, right? So you can determine how many asteroids hit the Earth. And so there isn't a whole lot of, of uh, dispute about these numbers. They are what they are. And so I like to say, well, why should we care about asteroids? Well, you can distill all those numbers down into, into odds. And you can think of us on our planet as playing a game of cosmic roulette. Every day we roll the dice, are we going to get hit by an asteroid or not? Now, asteroids come in various sizes, from big to small. There are craters big to small. Um, there are more small ones than there are big ones. And we could put these, you could boil all that down into the chance that, your that during your children's lifetime that, that the Earth will be hit by an asteroid of a some size. Okay, so here's where, here's, here are the numbers. In your children's lifetime, so let's call it roughly till the end of this century, the, the odds that there will be an asteroid that will hit the Earth somewhere on the surface of the Earth that's big enough to destroy a major city is about 30%. Now, the last time we had one of those was in 1908, where an asteroid struck in a place called Tunguska in Siberia. It leveled an area about the size of the San Francisco Bay Area from here to San Jose. Okay, it completely obliterated it. And, and in the next 100 years, there's about a 30% chance we'll have another one. Nobody disputes that. Now, it is true that most of the Earth is unpopulated, but less and less of it is getting to be so. Okay, so, and it sure would be a shame if the next one landed in an area that was not unpopulated. Okay, let's talk about larger ones. By the way, that asteroid that did that is about the size of this room, maybe a little bit larger. It was about 140, 150 feet across. So this, is, this room is probably about 80 feet across. So think of something about twice the size of this room. That was big enough to take out the entire San Francisco Bay Area. Or if you'd like the L.A. Basin or, you know, <laughs> Washington, D.C. Okay, let's talk about a larger one. Um, you know, who here has been over to the baseball park, AT&T Field? Okay, so take an asteroid that would fit easily inside that stadium. In fact, you could put several inside that stadium. Um, that size asteroid, when they hit, releases about 100 megatons of energy. Now, uh, just for scale, 100 megatons doesn't, you know, it's hard to compute. Um, what is that? That is, if you took all the bombs used in World War II, including the nuclear bombs, which were tested and, and dropped, put them all in one big place, set them off at the same time, that includes every bullet, every, everything that could blow up, and multiplied by five, that's about the energy, okay? So think World War level in terms of uh, amount of energy. Okay, what are the chances that that'll happen somewhere on Earth during your children's lifetime? It's about 1%. Now, it doesn't sound like that much, but I will guarantee you that you insure yourself against things that are far less likely than that. Okay, <laughs> who here has fire insurance on their house? Who, I mean, who, who owns a house and has fire insurance on your house? Why do you have fire insurance on your house? The chances of your house burning down are less than 1%. Why? It's not very likely, right? Okay, now, you, you do that because you can't accept what would happen if it did happen, right? You, you have to insure yourself against that. In the case of our planet, pretty much I don't care where that hits. It's very likely to have global, at the very least, economic and political ramifications, let alone if it killed you know, 100 million people, okay? Um, and by the way, dropping something like that into the ocean is not a guarantee that 
it could be worse because you can get tsunamis. Okay, so 1%. Interesting, huh? So it, this really is cosmic roulette, right? We won yesterday. We don't know if we're going to win tomorrow. How about the end of a cell? Now, this is an asteroid that would be about a couple of blocks, a kilometer across, so think of it as the size of a, a small mountain or you know, um, maybe three or four of these city blocks here, something like that, five city blocks. Um, I don't care where on earth that hits, that is the end of humanity. That is the end of human civilization. Everything that we have worked for, not us, just us, but us, our predecessors, our ancestors, and everything and all future generations are gone. That is the end of it. And nobody disputes that. that is, that's something like 40 gigatons of energy that's multiple times larger than all nuclear weapons ever built. So think of setting off every nuclear weapon ever built, um, multiply it by a bunch. That's the kind of scale that you would get. Doesn't matter where on the planet that hits, by the way. That's the end of us all. 0.001%. Okay. So my, my first goal in this uh, talk is actually to scare the pants off you. Um, so, you know, why do we take this risk? What I want to show you is that we could actually do something about it. So, but first, I, I thought it would be useful to show you what the solar system looks like because, A, I think this video is cool. And uh, it was produced by our friends at the California Academy of Sciences, by the way. And what, I've, what we're doing is we're, I'm showing you every single known asteroid in our solar system. So, we have, and the outer part of this is the asteroid belt. And all these are correct orbits, by the way. These are all plotted accurately. Um, we don't care about the asteroid belt because those asteroids can never hit the Earth. They're out there beyond Mars, between Mars and Jupiter. The light green line is the orbit of Earth. You can see Venus and Mercury in between. And these are the 10,000 asteroids whose orbits cross Earth's orbit. And that means they can hit Earth. We call these near-Earth asteroids because they come near Earth. Very creative, huh? Um, and there are 10,000 of them that NASA has found through a program called Space Guard. It's a wonderful program. They found uh, 10,000 of these asteroids. Here's the problem. We know how many asteroids there are. We can count craters. You can also tell how, what the real solar system must really look like, because we've only really observed some tiny fraction of the sky. It looks like this. There's about a million of them out there that are large enough to take out a major city, so larger than the one in 1908. That's really what the solar system looks like. And um, what we've done is we've just multiplied the distribution by 100. And you can see that we, in some sense, you can think of this as a giant cosmic shooting gallery. And when I said that, you know, we are playing roulette every day with our own civilization, it's, it's really true. So I, I want to let you in on a secret, which is that in two easy steps, you can actually prevent this, okay? <laughs> and uh, so what do you do about it, okay? Uh, the two easy steps, you can go to a cocktail party sometime this weekend and tell people, I know how to protect the Earth, because there are two, only two steps, <laughs> detect and deflect, okay? It even re I, we made it rhyme for you, so you can remember it. <laughs> detect and deflect. And what that means is that you find them, figure out where they all are, and then you deflect anything that's going to hit us, right? Simple, right? Who here believes that this is difficult? Okay, well, yeah, space technology is kind of difficult at some level. Um, who here believes step two is the hard part? You've seen Armageddon, you've seen uh, <laughs> things like that, right? Here's the surprising part. Step two is almost trivially easy compared to step one. We can do step two. We know how to do step two. We've done something very similar to this, and we know how to do it. Step one is the problem. 
we don't know where the asteroids are. Because think about it. If you don't know where asteroids are, you can't deflect them, right? If you don't know what's coming your way, it's like a baseball batter with his eyes closed, right? How do you know where to swing? You don't. So step one's the hard part, and actually technically harder. So that's the little surprising fact, is that deflecting asteroids is relatively easy, you know, on a large space mission scale of things. So, so how do you deflect an asteroid? Simple. The first thing you have to understand in order to understand how to deflect asteroids is that from very, very far away, it is extraordinarily difficult to hit something that's moving. Now, the Earth is going around the sun. We're all traveling right now about 65,000 miles an hour. We go around the sun. We travel about 600 million miles every year. Okay? Remember those orbits of those asteroids traveling also around the sun. Let's say an asteroid is going to hit the Earth in 10 years. Okay, that asteroid has roughly 6 billion miles to go before it hits the moving target of Earth. That's a very difficult shot. So what does it take to disrupt that 10 years beforehand? Not very much. This is really a timing issue. Now, the Earth, being about 8,000 miles across and moving at 65,000 miles an hour, travels a distance equal to its size in about 8 minutes, 7.5 minutes. And that means that if you, sh if you can make that asteroid show up to the intersection where it's going to hit the Earth three minutes early or three minutes late, it doesn't hit the Earth, right? Because the Earth's a moving target. So really the game boils down to how do I make an asteroid that's going, it's got six billion miles to go, show up to that same spot. I don't have to change its trajectory much, but show up three minutes early or three minutes late, 10 years from now. And that doesn't take much. And I'll get specific with you. Again, the typical speed of these things, 60 to 100,000 miles an hour. If you change the speed of an asteroid by about one millimeters per second, to give an example, if you go outside, you know, look, in your, look on the ground, find an ant walking, they walk about a millimeter per second, a little bit faster. Like a fast ant, a running ant can cover a few millimeters per second. So think about half or a third the speed of an ant. If you change the speed of an asteroid traveling 65,000 miles an hour by that amount, it's going to miss the Earth 10 years from now. It's actually pretty easy. Here's the problem. You need 10 years advance notice to do that, right? But it turns out that's actually what, you're gonna, what you get. So how do you make an asteroid, some big giant rock the size of this room, change its speed by the speed that an ant walks? Simple, basic physics tells you, if I run into it with a small, uh, the small spacecraft, I'll, I'll actually move it slightly, right? So all you have to do is basically ram it. The first thing you can do is, this is uh, called a kinetic impactor, which means it has kinetic energy and it impacts it. Um, so hold on, let me back that up. Don't know why that did that, but. So this is just a video of a small, tiny spacecraft on its way towards an asteroid, and instead of putting on the brakes before you get there, you just run into it. We've actually done this in 2004 with a mission called Deep Impact. We ran into a comet. There was also a movie by the name of Deep Impact, and it did change the velocity of that comet. That's all it takes. Now, there are occasions when you need to adjust the speed of, a, of an asteroid by a precise amount to keep it from returning back. And to do that, you can do something called a gravity tractor. So it's something that me and a colleague came up with some years back. But uh, all you really need to do is hover a small spacecraft. That's what the spacecraft looks like. 
and there's in, in the insert, but there it is hovering next to a rotating asteroid. And the tiny, tiny force of gravity, if you hover near it for a period of a few months is enough to change it by a fraction of a millimeter per second, you can finally adjust this even. So not only can you do this sort of simply, you can also do it accurately. And, and this, by the way, is from a simulation that we did at the Jet Propulsion Lab with an actual spacecraft model and a dynamical model of a real asteroid and so on. And it turns out to not actually be uh, that difficult of a mission. It is considerably simpler than landing a SUV-sized rover on Mars, for instance. So we can do this. But again, we keep coming back to we have to find the asteroids first. There's about a million asteroids out there that are large enough to do great damage on this planet. We found about 10,000. How do we find the other 99%? That is the entire problem right now. And so um, we're, we're doing just that. Um, our foundation, uh, it's called the B612 Foundation. Long story, if anybody wants to ask, I'll tell you what, what, where that comes from. But we spent a number of years looking at the problem of asteroid deflection, step two. And we came to the conclusion, as did the rest of the community, that, that deflection is actually doable. Um, about two years ago, I gave a talk back at, at Google, where I used to work, and I described how we knew how to, do, to deflect asteroids, but we really had no hope of deflecting the great majority of them because we don't know where they are. We haven't tracked them yet. And you know, I was just sort of describing the sad state of affairs and how the government wasn't doing anything at the time you know, for a host of reasons. Um, the government budget battles weren't allowing this to happen. It didn't fit neatly into the science missions at NASA and so on. And I basically, I left it sort of on a, a low note. And at the end of the talk, this guy came up to me. And he says to me, oh, well, how much would it cost to actually go ahead and find all those asteroids? You know how to do that, right? I said, well, yeah, I, there's a particular kind of telescope that you need to build and so on, which I'll tell you about. But he said, oh, how much would that cost to build a spacecraft like that? I said, well, if you didn't have to do it through government contracting, if you just knew the, knew the right people, if you, if you could go directly towards starting the project and so on, you could do this pretty efficiently. You know, in, a, in, in five years or so, you could put this thing together for a few hundred million dollars, which in spacecraft standards is moderate. Um, it's a ton of money, though. And, and he says, oh, okay. He goes, so why don't you just do it? <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, A, you're crazy, and B, what do you mean, just do it? So I, I basically said, what do you mean, why don't I go just do it? And he goes, oh, why don't you just raise the money and do it? And he goes, then he continued, and he said, you know what? I am a member of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and we're building a new addition to the, the museum. You know, it's a wonderful museum. And, you know, probably, who here has been to that museum? Great place, by the way. My sister sitting there did build that building. So. <laughs> but uh, um, they're rebuilding it now. They're putting a new addition on it. And he goes, um, and we are raising, at the time he said $400 million. I know, understand it's up to $550 million. We're raising $500, you know, $500 million or so to build the new addition of, the, of an art museum. And it's just the people of San Francisco who are going to come together and we're going to do this. We're going to build this beautiful building for the people of San Francisco for the next you know, 50 years or whatnot. They'll, the people of San Francisco will have this museum to enjoy. It's a wonderful thing. And, and he goes, think about that. He goes, so you're telling me that if we can raise $500 million to build an addition 
to an art museum that you can't raise less than that to save the world? <laughs> and you really got me thinking. <laughs> so I'm driving home, and I'm thinking to myself, man, that's crazy. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he, he actually went on and told me a little bit about how people raise money for things like you know, museums or universities raise money for you know, new chemistry buildings or whatnot. And he goes, oh, there's hundreds of projects this size. Most of them are larger, actually, going on any given time in the United States. And he turned out to be right. So I'm driving home, and finally I get to my driveway, and I just decided I was going to call up Rusty Schweikart. And so I, I call him on my cell phone. I'm sitting out there in my driveway, and I said, Rusty, you know, and I told him the story of what this guy said, and, and I go, I think we got to do this. And he goes, uh, and Rusty, in, in his own, he goes, you know, who's a, for those who know him, he's a, he's a crotchety guy. <laughs> Rusty goes, I think you're right. I think this is what we need to do. And that was the sort of turning point. This was a little less than two years ago. And we decided to go do just that. So uh, we're raising the money. We're building a space telescope. It's called Sentinel. I'll show you what it looks like. This is it. It's, uh, it's a lot bigger than that. It is roughly the size of this ceiling. So if you look up to the top there, to the floor, that's about the height of it. It's an infrared space telescope because asteroids are, are very, very dark. They're almost the color of charcoal. And that means that they're very, very difficult to spot from the ground because they're small and they're dark and they're out there in space far away, millions of miles from the Earth. And that's why we've only found 1% of them. But if they're small, but, but if they're dark, they're warmed by the sun and they glow in infrared. So what we're building, this space telescope is actually an infrared space telescope. So you can think of that as something like the world's largest pair of night vision goggles. And it will spot these things. You can see asteroids from great distances, and they stand out like sore thumbs against the dark background sky in infrared. Furthermore, you want to put this satellite in a particular location. You don't want it next to the Earth, because then you can only look outwards from the Earth. You cannot look inwards towards the sun. You know, any kid will tell you that if you want to look at stars, you don't go out in the middle of the day and look towards the sun, right? You look out at night. So it is going to, we're going to place it into an orbit around the sun near the orbit of the planet Venus. You see that white swath? That is the area that it can see. The light green line is the Earth's orbit, and it will actually scan Earth's orbit. And over a period of years, it's actually going to find and track all these asteroids that could that could hit Earth and will give us the decades of warning we need to employ the easy step, step two. <laughs> so, getting back to how do we protect our planet? You know, there's really a, you know, you can think of it, detect, deflect, defend, all begins with letter D. Um, and uh, here's how I actually think this is going to play out. By the way, in, we are launching in 2018. Uh, we're going to launch from Cape Canaveral aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. And we are going to uh, deploy, and within six and a half years, we'll basically complete this map of the asteroids in our solar system. And uh, that'll be step one. What if we find one that's going to hit the Earth? And, and, and by the way, I can tell you the chances we're going to find one. Remember, the, I told you that there's a 30% chance this century that there's going to be an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth? Well, that means we have a 30% chance of finding an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth, right? <laughs> because there's a 30% chance that there is one, right? And so this is actually pretty likely, right? So you can look forward to in the next decade or so an announcement that an asteroid is going to hit the Earth on a certain time, date, and place. 
we can track things very, very accurately. We can actually tell you down to sort of the fraction of a second and within a few kilometers of where that thing's going to hit. And now, how do we generate the funds to pay to deflect it? Okay? I submit that that is not a problem. <laughs> and that's because that's landing on somebody's house, or at least somebody's congressional district, right? It is a well-defined threat, and that is something that our governments are very good at handling, right? Our governments are not good at handling the probabilistic long-term threats, step one. And that's where the private organizations come in, like us, the nonprofits, uh, like Long Now. We are raising this money philanthropically, and we're going to give the data out to the world so that everyone gets the warning, and step two will happen. I have full confidence that step two will happen if, they, if we know that something's going to hit us. And um, step three, I call it defend, but really, this is actually kind of the interesting thing as you get philosophical about these things. Um, I think actually step three is the enormous party that you throw afterwards. <laughs> and, and I say that kind of facetiously, but it, it's actually true if you think about it. That's going to be a unifying event in world history. Up until this time, for the last four billion years, on this planet, the third planet from the sun, this planet has been hit repeatedly by large asteroids. Okay? That process should stop from this point on, unless we get hit before we, de before we deploy our satellite sentinel. Um, from that point on, we should not be hit by asteroids anymore if we do our job. So, you know, what our, the way I look at this is, is our gift to future generations that we are going to stop this process. Okay? And, you know, um, basically that's also our gift to our donors. You know, they become the heroes who get to save the earth. And so there's, there's something in it for them, which is the knowledge of knowing that they actually did something to change and protect the future of the entire planet, which is very empowering. Which is, I think, personally why our donors um, uh, have stepped up to doing this. So in the end, that's what, this is what it's all about, is protecting this particular spaceship. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, when I, when I think about the things that, you know, I think about how lucky I am. I've had the opportunity to do some really cool things, courtesy of the U.S. taxpayer. Thank you very much. Um, but right now, I, I feel luckier than ever, because I get to try and save the planet, for real. And... Um, that is an incredible gift. That is a, an incredible opportunity. It's one you can't turn down. It's one that if you're lucky in your entire life, you'll get a chance to do that. Right? So I feel very, very lucky. So I would like to end it here and switch to question and answer. Uh, so thank you for your attention, and I will answer anything about any question you've got. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Stuart. Have a seat. Great picture, huh? <laughs> it seldom looks like that, doesn't it? I mean, that's a very rare place to get that to the sun <laughs> right exactly behind the camera. Exactly. And, and then, mm -hmm. I think the thing that, sh you know, I used to curate photographs of the Earth, and the thing that always shocked people is it was mostly a crescent most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Earth, you, don't, you don't get the uh, full Earth view. Plus, weirdly enough, North is not up. It's just <laughs> Wherever you are is up. Right? All you have to do is turn the camera. Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, Kevin Kelly's happens to be on top here. 
How many world war-sized asteroids have hit the Earth in the last 2,000 years? Okay, so let's do a little math, all right? It's always dangerous, as I say, to do math in public. Okay, but <laughs> every 10,000 years, you know, if it's 1% per century, that means that roughly every 10,000 years we are hit by an asteroid of that size. Mm -hmm. So human civilization is roughly 10,000 years old. Right. So in the last 2,000 years, it's likely, there's only a 20% chance that there's been one, mm -hmm. but it's possible. And it likely would have landed in the ocean. It's likely the legend of a great flood. Okay. Um, if an asteroid that size hit us 10,000 years ago, frankly, it's not that big of a deal because we didn't have an interconnected society. We didn't have you know, global transport networks, global uh, monetary networks, or things like that. We had no YouTube, most importantly. And <laughs> so nobody would have found out about it. You may, maybe you killed off, you wipe out a bunch of fishing villages. Today, that's not the case. Question from Cameron Woodward. Will the foundation be working with private space exploration companies to address this issue? What can I do right now to help? Okay, well, we are a private... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. No, we are a private uh, organization. We are partnered, however, with NASA. No, I don't want to bash them because they are partners of ours. NASA does want to get this data. They do want to do the right thing. Um, Washington sometimes doesn't allow that. Um, so. We went to NASA with a great deal. We said, look, we're going to go do this. We'll give the data out. How would you like to have the data? And they said, we would love to have the data. We would like to put it on our website and put it on, you know, distribute it to scientists around the world. And, said, and we have an ask. He goes, we need to transmit our data back through antennas on the ground. And you have antennas on the ground that do just that. We don't want to build another set. Mm -hmm. And they said, you can use ours. It's called the Deep Space Network. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, we are, this in some sense already is a public-private partnership. Now, as to what you can do, um, you know, I have to plug our websites, b612foundation.org, and you can sign up to get, um, you know, information on what's going on. We have regular progress updates and so on. And, uh, or you can donate, you know, and um, in the end, it's our donors that are making this happen. Andrew asks, can you tell us in morbid detail exactly <laughs> what happens when a planet killer hits? Oh, a planet killer. <laughs> well, I can tell you a little bit about the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I, I didn't bring it with me, but I actually have a little chunk of what's called the KT boundary. It's a, it's a layer of rock that if you go anywhere in the world, I don't care what continent you're on, if you dig down to the right depth, you will find a layer of rock with a layer of ash in the middle, which was very, very thick at one point, then was crushed down to form a layer of rock, about yay thick, and it was laid down all in, over a period of a couple days when the whole Earth burned. What actually happened is if you look at the energy of an asteroid that size, which landed in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, it threw up enough molten rock out of the crater, which is about 100 some odd miles across, and it's about 30 or 40 miles deep. And if you do the math, you know, pi r squared times the depth, I love to do math in public, and you know, you, you're talking hundreds of thousands of cubic miles of molten rock. Where does it go? It goes up into space. And then it comes back down all around the globe. And if you look at the energy of that hitting the atmosphere, a couple hundred thousand cubic miles of rock hitting the atmosphere, you find that the atmosphere ends up at about 500 degrees for a few mm -hmm. hours. So what that means is that everything catches fire. And everything burned that day, which is why we have no more dinosaurs. There are dinosaur fossils below this and none above this. Um, it basically burned everything that could on the whole planet. Um, over a period of probably a couple days. What happened to the oceans at that? Not that much, which is That's, why wow. many species survived under puddles, under rocks, 
little mm -hmm. furry creatures that became humans eventually. Um, and uh, so that's the sort of gory detail of it, but um, that shouldn't happen anymore. Gory details, what happened in... <laughs> I believe. <laughs> My personal feelings. Right. Is a big rock like that really hard to nudge, or they, is um, it arbitrary? Well, you get, you get one benefit from this. Big rocks tend to be easier to spot. You tend to get longer notice. Mm -hmm. So the longer away something is from hitting, the less you need to l nudge it. So the fact that it's bigger is offset somewhat by the fact that you, in general, will get a longer notice. Um, again, unless one of these things is on its way in the next you know, couple of decades and we're just slow in putting up our telescope. Mm -hmm. In that case, then you just end up with this situation where there's nothing you can do. And then we can make some bad movies about it and stuff. But um, uh, you, it is within our capability to do that. Now, it, it, it wouldn't be a single mission. You may have to fly you know, 10 missions or something like that. But again, I think if the Earth is going to end, we'll find the funding to send 10 missions up there and do that. <laughs> Uh, speaking of gory details, you say exactly what happened with that recent uh, Siberian uh, meteorite. Yeah, who here was on watching YouTube on February 15th? Anybody see um, Russian dash cams? <laughs> okay, um, the, there was a small asteroid, um, so about 50 feet across. So that is, would easily fit inside this room. Okay, mm -hmm. so, um, and it landed about the distance from here to, you know, uh, let's say, let's say Chelyabinsk is San Francisco. It landed somewhere around Sacramento. Okay, uh, so it's pretty far away, and it was coming at a very shallow angle, hmm. which meant that its shock wave actually wasn't headed down. The shock wave was headed sideways, hmm. and that is why the city of Chelyabinsk, the, the residents of Chelyabinsk, got very lucky. All it did was blow out 100,000 windows and send 2,000 people to the hospital, mm -hmm. because it was. You know, 40, 50 miles away from the city and at very high altitude going sideways. Um, had it been closer to the city or been coming down, we would, we, you could have had a million casualties. Um, the explosive energy of that impact was about 30 times the bomb used over Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty big. You know, again, small rock, you know, fits inside here, moving at, uh, you know, 40,000 miles an hour has a lot of energy. And, so these, a couple of these things are basically atmosphere impacts. I mean, both mm -hmm. of the Siberian events, yes. the rock didn't hit the ground and cause mm -hmm. a problem, it hit the atmosphere and caused a problem. Yes, and in fact, you often get more damage when you burst in the air. Mm -hmm. This is something they actually knew at the time of, you know, in World War II. They often blow up bombs that you drop in the air mm -hmm. because they cause more damage when they, they blow up in the air than they do if they hit the ground. Question from Peter Schwartz. What if the object hit a... Tortoise is a comet, like deep impact. Mm -hmm. uh, is it harder to predict the course, harder to do something about it? Yeah, comets are an interesting and unsolved problem. Comets are different than asteroids in that instead of orbiting the sun in close like us, they come from the far, far, far outreaches, way out, you know, many times the distance of Pluto. Mm -hmm. So you can't spot them out there because they're really cold out there. And so they don't glow in infrared very well. Uh, you can pick them up at some level, but it's very, very hard. They come screaming in at high speed, they go zipping around, and they go head back out, and they disappear again. Um, not to come back for perhaps, you know, decades or even hundreds of years. And that means that you basically don't get to map those things very easily. We don't have the technology to do that. So we currently don't have the technology to stop a comet. But I'm not going to let this stop us from solving the problem of asteroids. 
because there are roughly 100 times more asteroids than comets. And there's a lot of problems I don't know how to solve. Global warming, you know, poverty, education, and comets. Um, and, <laughs> but the one problem that I do know how to solve is asteroids. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's nothing, not that we shouldn't solve it, but it's, it is a smaller problem, numerically. Do you, are there, hmm, historically, or looking at the moon's surface, have there been comet impacts that you can detect as being such? No, the difference between a comet impact and an asteroid impact is likely to, from the point of view of the crater, not much. At mm -hmm. those speeds, you know, ice, rock, doesn't matter what it is, when you're moving, you know, 40 or 50,000 miles an hour, mm, doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. leaves a big hole. <laughs> And uh, I think we saw one of the gas planets, uh, was it Jupiter or Saturn had yeah, a Jupiter big, was hit, yes. Uh, tell about that one. Yes, it, it was about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we had, uh, at, that was a cometary fragment that was captured by, uh, by Jupiter and was predicted ahead of time. They actually spotted it before it hit Jupiter mm -hmm. by a woman named Carolyn Shoemaker and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and a guy named David Levy. Uh, and they actually gave advance warning, and we actually got incredible images of this thing. Um, the, the chunks were about a mile across or so, or something like that. And it was interesting because they left these scars on the planet, roughly each of which was roughly the size of planet Earth. So, you know, you, you don't want to get hit by these things. Again, I stress <laughs> my feeling is we should not be hit by these things. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty big, I remember the images of it hitting the... Yeah, and, and if you draw the Earth splash. to scale next to that, you'd find that those things are the size of the Earth. <sighs> what a neighborhood we live in. <laughs> hey, I want to leave this as a hopeful message because we can do something about it. Here, here. Uh, Danielle asks, are asteroids potentially useful to us? What do we know of about the mineable resources, technologies developing, coming for asteroid mining? There seems to be a private company who wants to mine asteroids. How does that relate to all this? Now, asteroids potentially could be someday um, a source of resources for use in space. Now, we have no idea how we're going to do that. Use in right space, now. not on Earth. Uh, likely, because mm -hmm. bringing things like ore back is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Likely, they're, they're talking about use in space. Now, we don't have any idea how to do that. But mm -hmm. I can tell you step one, find them. <laughs> it's exactly the same. You can't mine an asteroid if you don't know where it is. All right? You can't deflect it either. But um, all of those companies have exactly the same problem, that they only know where 1% of the asteroids are. With your, with Sentinel, will you be able to, some of the asteroids are really kind of valuable in terms of a lot of metal and stuff like that, and a lot of them are pretty worthless rock and, you know, good as gravel, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, will Sentinel be able to tell the difference between them? Is their mass make them detectable? Sentinel will not be able to tell the difference between them by itself. Okay. But this is actually an interesting problem. The, we have lots of telescopes with very high magnification that can tell that you have to do what's called spectroscopy. Um, now, the, the telescopes that can find out what the composition of an asteroid are have very, very small fields of use. It's like looking through a soda straw, okay? So they need to know where to point. To find asteroids, you want to be able to see the whole sky, right? To determine what's in a particular asteroid, you want to look at it through a soda straw at high magnification, like the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. So what we will actually do is tell people where all the asteroids are, and then you can point these other telescopes and find out what the individual asteroids are made out of, okay. once you tell them where to point. 
Um, Dan Whaley asks, how many years in advance can you predict the path of an asteroid and with what kind of precision? Precision is actually very, very good. Um, and, and typically, we should give, be able to give warning of about, um, you know, up to about 100 years if, uh, before an asteroid hits us. And um, so to give you an idea of the kind of tracking accuracy that we have, you know, consider that we landed that Martian rover uh, in the central part of a crater, slightly off to one side near the central peak, you know, on purpose, right? So we, mm -hmm. on Mars, okay? And that required, you know, we knew where to send that, that vehicle years ahead of time. Before we even launched it, we knew where we were sending it, right? It was in a computer file somewhere, right? But that's exactly the same process by which we will track asteroids, you know? So when we find one that's going to hit the Earth, you actually know where it's going to hit and when. Uh, there's a question here, do they ever hit each other and sort of deflect their path? Because do asteroids of... ever hit each other? No, they, they do on occasion, and because mm -hmm. of the larger asteroids have craters on them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty rare because these are, these are small. You know, they, 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 the likeliest way an asteroid is going to die is not by hitting another asteroid, it's by hitting a planet, which is much larger. Mm -hmm. And so the planets tend to suck them up. And planets tend to suck them in, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, when Rusty talked uh, nine years ago, he said that part of detection and, and getting a, a fix on the track is, you know, was it really going to be a, a collision path uh, that you would want to put some kind of a tag on the mm -hmm. asteroid? Is yeah. that still the case? It's called a transponder, and I think it's likely. So what's, what's going to happen is this. We're going to find an asteroid. We're going to say, we're going to track it for some period of time. We're going to say, hey, this one's got a, a very good chance of hitting the Earth, or, or this one is actually going to hit the Earth. You want to be really darn sure, and one of the things we're likely to do is to put, get an independent means of measuring its position, mm -hmm. is to put next to it a small spacecraft. It could be a gravity tracker. You could also tow it with the same spacecraft at the same mm -hmm. time if you need to. But we'll also um, add some accuracy to the, the positioning, because when you, you can think of it as a homing beacon. You know, it'll have a radio transmitter on board, and when you put it next to the, to the asteroid, you launch up to it and you bring it close by, we'll then be able to measure precisely using our ground telescopes, our ground antennas, mm -hmm. its position. And we'll be able to, so I think before, you, you would likely do this ahead of time to increase your accuracy. Again, you know, if, if we've got a giant asteroid headed for San Francisco, we'll do that. <laughs> I, you know, cost of such a mission might be a few hundred million, but I think it's worth it. And so it sounds like one of the things you get with a transponder there is the kind of accuracy. It sounds like you could actually say where it would hit on the planet. Uh, yeah, more than just that. I mean, you, you, you get a lot. Uh, I mean, you, you can actually say where it will hit based without that. Mm -hmm. But this one gives you another further confidence level. And also, it gives you the ability, once you deflect it, to remeasure it to make sure it worked. Your mm -hmm. deflection, right? To measure mm -hmm. where is it going. Oh, interesting. So what you do is you would back that spacecraft off, do your deflection, and then go back in. Right. Because I think everyone's going to want to know right away whether or not it worked. Did it work? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> because not working would be one. you stay in the keyhole or something like that. It comes exactly. around and gets you next time. Exactly. What, uh, what Stuart's talking about is something mm -hmm. called a keyhole, which is this, you know, yay, we deflected it. Oh, no, it can, comes back and hits us again. And, and it turns out that if you just miss a planet, just go grazing past it, the Earth or the whatever that planet is will change the trajectory of an asteroid. Now, anybody here who studied um, 
uh, orbital mechanics, and I don't know if there is anybody besides me, but if you did, you would know that orbits do come back to the same place. Okay, so it is possible that all you have done is delayed the impact by a couple of years. That's called a return keyhole. You, want, you need to prevent that before you do a premature celebration of number three that you've deflected it. <laughs> um, so that, but we, again, this is something we understand. I, I still lump that into the, the easier half of things. Andy Isaacson asks, by publishing asteroid locations, you will enable asteroid mining private ventures. Is this a good, bad, and different, and or illegal prospect, and, or is it a business model? I think I'm happy to enable scientific missions, mm -hmm. commercial missions, exploration missions, mm -hmm. all of those things. And I think we should. You know, I, I look at it as our... our you know, our contribution is to provide, the, you can think of this as a map of the solar system, right? You know, what, are the, what is the first thing you do before you explore a continent? You map it, right? What did Lewis and Clark do? They mapped the interior part of, the, of, the, of North America, right? So that you could, go, you could go do these things. And I think that's a great thing. Again, I can't emphasize enough that right now, nobody has any credible means of mining an asteroid, but someday in the future, I believe we will. For what? What would we use a mined asteroid for? Space colonies? I think the likest, likeliest thing is rocket fuel. Rocket fuel is water, because hmm. if you break it up, it's hydrogen and oxygen, which is what we use to power the space shuttle. And I think rocket fuel will be the, the thing, because the majority of what rockets carry up is actually their fuel. Mm -hmm. And someday when we have an economy that, that exists more than just on the Earth, and I believe we will someday, mm -hmm. as long as we don't get wiped out by an asteroid. Someday. Uh, this, yeah. <laughs> uh, is someday this century, or when do you think? Um, I would not bet against it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think, you know, you, it's always been a losing bet to bet against people's ingenuities and against, you know, to, to say that, you know, oh, we'll never be able to do that in X mm -hmm. number of years. That's always been a losing proposition to make uh, statements like that. So I won't Speaking say. of weird <laughs> things, of uh, gravity tractor, is, uh, you know, we've watched enough tractor beams in enough movies <laughs> to think, yeah, right. Uh, say a little bit about why a gravity tractor and what it, what's actually going on here. Okay. Uh, gravity tractor. So myself and my colleague, another astronaut named Stan Love, mm -hmm. uh, who has a PhD, so he's Dr. Love. Um, <laughs> we came up with this idea in 2004, I think it was, um, because... The problem with trying to put an engine on an asteroid to move it is that they're spinning asteroids, right? And if you have an engine that's point, you know, even if you attach it to things spinning, you're not going anywhere, right? It's like the balloon that you let go, right? It just goes around in a little circle, right? Um, and asteroid surfaces are crumbly and so on. So you, we were trying to figure out a way to move them without actually touching them. Mm -hmm. And we realized that you only need to apply a tiny amount of force, the amount of force that you need to lift up like a stack of cards. Because mm -hmm. if you apply this amount of force, over a period of months, that actually adds up. Mm -hmm. You ever been on, stood along a, a dock and tried to pull a boat into a dock? You know, you got a rope on it and, you're, and you pull, 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 and it looks like it's not doing anything, but if you just sit there and just pull on it for about a minute or two, at some point you realize it's starting to move. Mm -hmm. Same principle. The, the, what's known as the impulse is the product of how long you push for it times the force you push for. So even though the force is small, if you do it for months or years at a time, you can actually move significant-sized objects. And it turns out that anything near a massive asteroid, there's a force of attraction between them. It's gravity. Mm -hmm. And in order to stay there, you can have rocket thrusters that could push to keep you away from the asteroid, 
But if the thrusters point at it, you're actually pushing the asteroid away from you. But if you can't, your thrusters out like this, and ah. then the rocket plumes don't hit the asteroid, and you hold position, you can just sort of tow it. Mm -hmm. And that's, it turns out to be actually a fairly simple spacecraft to build. And are you typically going to want to go in the orbital path? Of, do you want to deflect its orbital path or just make it go slower or faster? Uh, basically, you want to make an asteroid go slower or faster. Uh, and because it's the whole thing of upsetting the timing, mm -hmm. taking advantage of the fact that the Earth is a moving target. So you're really not going to move its path very much at all. You're going to adjust the timing. So the rear-ending stories are all about speeding it up. Does yep, it make or, a difference? Or, or you, can get, you can get in the way and let it hit you and slow it down, too. That also works. So you can hit it on either side or tow it in either direction. And you know, in a particular situation, any particular reason to choose speeding it up or slowing it down? Um, usually the thing that will determine whether or not you speed an asteroid up or slow it down depends upon... The, orbital, the launch opportunity you get to send something there, because it turns out that usually there will be one good way to come in towards it, um, because you're going to go around the sun and getting it to, getting it to meet up with it, you know, either on the front side or the back side, um, will usually determine it. Now, you can also have geopolitical considerations, because if an asteroid's gonna hit the Earth and you move it one way, um, and, but you don't move it far enough, you, you can shift it in one direction versus the other direction. So, um, you know, Rusty Schweikart talks about this issue, which way do you push? Mm -hmm. It turns out, though, that in many, many cases, if not most cases, you really can only push in one direction because you don't have a launch opportunity in the other direction. So it may, in many cases, you just end up being able to push it one direction only because you don't, I don't have a good orbit that takes me from Earth to the asteroid within a set amount of time that, that is moving faster than it in the same position as it or slower than it. Say more about launch opportunities. Um, these are called launch windows. Mm -hmm. And people are familiar with it, for instance, like because let's say uh, the Earth and Mars, right? They're both going around the sun. The Earth's going around once a year. Mars um, is something like uh, 18 months. And um, so they're both going around at different speeds. You can't launch at any given time from here and, and make it to this moving target over here because you, you need to have a path that takes you, because basically you're, you're going to put your spacecraft into an orbit itself mm -hmm. that has to catch up with another object. So um, that is why when we launch to Mars, we have an, what is called a launch window every 26 months. Mm -hmm. So there are launch windows for reaching asteroids too, and they depend entirely upon what the orbit of that asteroid is. So there, it's not as simple as Mars, but there are only certain times you can launch. I can see this would be another element of you would like as much advance notice as possible so you have because as many, exactly. there's some things that it's already too late. You're hired. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> yes. The longer in general you have to do this allows you a bunch of things. Number one, the less you need to move the asteroid. Mm -hmm. Number two, the more opportunities you have for plan B mm -hmm. if something happens. And, uh, and C, you know, launch windows become mm -hmm. easier. So, so again, uh, my, my friend Don Yeomans, who's uh, at the Jet Propulsion Lab, he says there's three rules for uh, what makes uh, asteroid deflection easy. He goes, and he goes there's three things you've got to have. It's like, it's like uh, the three rules of real estate. He says it's find them early, find them early, and find them early. Mm -hmm. you know, so, uh, and, and that's really true. How early is plausible? There must be a certain amount of fuzz even in orbital mechanics. Yeah, the kind of... With the kind of accuracy that we have with Sentinel, mm -hmm. um, the typical time you're going to give is multiple decades. Multiple decades? Yes. 
So the, the, you shouldn't think... 20, 30 years? Yes. You should not think of the warning that you're going to get as, oh, this thing is going to hit us next week and we have to blow it up. You know, right. Again, don't think blowing up anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you should be thinking, oh, on... I'm just making up this date, you know, April 18th, you know, 2046 at 723 in the morning in this city, there's going to be an impact. What are we going to do? And we've got 30 years. You should be, that's the way that it's going to look like. And that's what allows you to, the chance to methodically do step two. That's an astonishing amount of precision in a very long time in advance. Yes, it is. uh, um, I'll use another example of the kind of precision that NASA has developed. In, uh, I guess it was about seven or eight years ago, we landed a probe on Titan Mm -hmm. on the shore of a lake of a moon of Saturn Mm -hmm. on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So we have this kind of precision. You know, uh, isn't, you know, isn't math and astronomy incredible? (laughs) Yeah. Boring, actually, and compared to biology, where you never know what the hell is <laughs> going on. That's not boring. <laughs> it's precision. <laughs> Mr. Um, Biologist. Kevin Kelly always talks about <laughs> unintended benefits. Um, so you got Sentinel going, and it's there dutifully watching for threatening asteroids. What else is it going to find that might be of interest? Yeah, we've been talking to a lot of our um, astronomer friends. Mm-hmm. And it turns out what we're actually finding is objects that vary in brightness, either because they're moving or because they're varying in brightness. Hmm. Um, so, the, you know, what will we find out there? I don't actually know yet because this is an, a range, this range of the infrared spectrum, that's between 4 and 10 microns for anybody who cares, um, is one that is not well explored hmm. at all because we're building the first large-scale detector in this mm-hmm. frequency range. And... The history of astronomy is that whenever you open up a brand new frequency range to observe things, say in x-rays or infrared or That's microwave true. or whatnot, you always find something surprising. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the great advances in astronomy have always happened because we've opened up a brand new observing range with our telescopes. Mm-hmm. We're going to do the same. What are we going to find? I don't know. I, I, I look forward to it because I'm sure we're going to find some interesting things. And I'm sure that you know, in the end, when we look back at what, what the contribution of Sentinel is besides saving the world, there, there's going to be incredible science, too. <laughs> and I think that, you know, you also, again, if I know where the asteroids are going to hit the Earth, I also know the ones that are going to go near the Earth and therefore can be reached by exploration missions mm-hmm. and by robotic scientific probes, too. Because, again, right now we know of 10,000 asteroids. We're going to know of a million asteroids when this is all done. I'm sure that there are thousands of interesting ones out there, and many of them are going to come close to the Earth. Hmm. So, by the way, whenever you read or hear in the news or, you know, see on TV that an asteroid has whizzed past the Earth, you know, and there was one uh, about two weeks ago on the 31st, um, think to yourself, ah, for every one that we know about, there's 99 more that we never knew about, (laughs) because that's the case. Now, the one on the 31st, by the way, was a about two and a half kilometers across, I think, something like that. And uh, so that, would, that falls into the wipe us all out category. The, Did we uh, know about that one? Yeah, we knew about that one. We knew it wasn't going to hit us. It only missed us by about three million miles, which is, uh, you know, in, cosmically speaking, actually mm-hmm. n- reasonably close. Not mm-hmm. that close, but, um, but, you know, think about it. 
What if that thing had been on its way towards hitting us? And, we, and, and let's say you only had a year's notice. There's nothing you can do. That would be the end of us. That, was, that one was large enough to take us all out, take all of humanity out. <laughs> all so, right, uh, schedule. Um, <laughs> I, I get a certain sense of urgency now. Uh, getting Sentinel up, uh, happen when? We are launching Sentinel in 2018, and um, our current plan is actually a July 20th launch uh, 2018. I love July 20th date, which is because of a launch window towards Venus. We'll use the gravity of Venus to pull us into orbit around the sun, but I love it because that's also the anniversary of the first moon landing. Hey, hey. And uh, to get from here to there, so you've got Sentinel designed, is that right? Yeah, we, we have sort of eight major milestones towards the launch. Mm -hmm. uh, these are what are known as the technical reviews of which you button everything up with each stage of design. Um, and we've been through the first one, we're heading towards the second one, which will be in November. The eighth milestone is actually we're lighting the fuse to launch it into space. So that, that'll put us at about the quarter waypoint uh, when we, by November. Let's talk money. Um, $200 million, is that still sort of the rough number? No, it's, on this it's thing? large. $200 million is roughly what the spacecraft costs. You have to add in operations, you have mm -hmm. to add in mission control, you have to add in a rocket, all this other stuff. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's about double that. And but you're not raising 200 million or 300 million, wherever it'll be right now. How much are you raising now? Well, like any project, you raise what you need for the next milestone. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so our current milestone uh, this year, our goal is 20 million. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that that keeps us towards milestone two. And so, if anybody out here has a check for 20 million, um, you can see Danica here or Karen <laughs> over there. <laughs> for that amount, they get a naming opportunity, right? Yes, they do. We will name anything we after. <laughs> <laughs> Danica has two sons. She's willing to change their names. <laughs> Where does the federal government cut in, if ever? I mean, this thing is sort of the way yeah. you sort of explained it at the beginning is that you're going to, uh, the federal government is not stepping up, and so private sector can do this really hard detect part of knowing that somebody else will step up once there's something to do, defend from. But... Um, is this going to be B612 all the way into orbit, or, Current, or currently it is. things cut in? Um, I sources? would say there are some interesting discussions going on, mm -hmm. um, which I can't really talk about publicly. But the, you know, there, there, are, there is interest. It was sparked because of the, an asteroid impact over Russia, mm. and the ensuing congressional hearings where the head of Space Command, General Shelton, the head of NASA, Charlie Bolden, and the, the head of uh, the President's Science Advisor, Advisor John Holdren, were up in front of Congress, and I was too, and they were asked, did you see this asteroid coming? And the answer was no, no, and no. Hmm. Why not? Because we're not looking for it. We're not looking for it, and we're not looking for it. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to find the next one? And the reply from General Shelton was, my stuff looks down, not up. <laughs> Charlie Bolden and uh, John Holdren both said the B612 Foundation is going to do that for us. The natural question that arose is, oh, when I got up there, uh, so you're going to find these asteroids for us, right? And we said, yes. And they said, are we supporting you? We said, uh, well, you know, you're congratulating us and you are 
Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and we have a, 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 an agreement to transmit our data through your... Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, how much money are we giving you? I said, nothing. And they said, well, we need to talk. And so um, there are discussions. Things move slow in, in Washington. But this really gets to the point of, at some level, protecting you know, us, providing for the common defense, right, is a governmental role, right? And there's two ways of looking at this. You can either say, well, they ought to do that. We got to send an army of lobbyists, and we got to figure out a way to get this to happen amidst our current budgetary environment. Mm -hmm. Or you can just do it, right? And so, I mean, I look at this as being a case where I think, and I'm not sure how this is all going to play out, but you know, there are many cases where the government leads and private citizens follow, and there are some cases where the private citizens lead and governments follow. Mm -hmm. I think this is likely going to be one of those cases. In fact, um, I should point out Karen Putnam over there, who is um, with B612 Foundation. Now, Karen, uh, for those who don't know her, um, previously uh, was the, you were the president of Central Park Conservancy, correct? And for that, she raised the money. If, if, for those who remember, about, I think it was about 15 years ago or so, you, you raised the, the $100 million plus to renovate and, and fix up Central Park, which was sorely in need of it. And Karen tells us, I'll, I'll paraphrase your words, that um, the thing that they had to go, they went to private citizens to do this. And remember, that park is a public park. Mm. The city of New York owned and operated it, right? Owns and operates it. Um, but they didn't have the money to fix it up, and it was falling apart, right? And you could whine and complain that the, the city wasn't doing its job to upkeep the public property for everybody in New York, mm -hmm. or the private citizens could step up and just do it, you know, in conjunction with the city. And um, you know, that's why she's perfect for, for our organization, because we have a very similar story. Uh, you know, this, in the end, I think, and this is the empowering part of this, is that gen in private individuals can start the ball rolling. Um, we can even finish it. Hmm. You know, the government choose to get involved, and we may work with them on that. But right now, um, we are solely supported by private donations. Well, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, as a sort of veteran of the shuttle and the space science and all that, uh, that you thought that non-government could move more quickly and more surely in terms of design and construction and the costs and mm -hmm. schedule and so on. Say a little more about that. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was part of NASA for 12 years. Mm -hmm. I've been involved in aerospace-related things for now almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I know the inefficiencies we had. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of these inefficiencies are driven by government regulations, which are there to prevent people sending contracts to friends and things like that, all sorts of good reasons you have mm -hmm. government regulations on these things, but they prevent you from doing things in the most efficient way. For anybody who's here has ever held a government job knows that we don't do things in the most efficient way in the government. We can do big things, mm -hmm. but clearly not efficiently. So when we decided we were going to do this, I called up a guy named Harold Reitzma, Mm. who was a, uh, he came up with this idea of the Infrared Space Telescope to find asteroids. Um, and I said, Harold, um, you know, you know, you'd been pitching this for a few years now, and, you know, in a perfect world, how would you build this project? Let's just say I had the funding for it. In a perfect world, how would you, how would you do this? He goes, well, 
you know, we would do a, we would sign a commercial contract for this instead of a, what are called cost plus contracts, which is the government does things. Whatever you say it costs you, we add 5% and there's your profit. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Um, which works when you don't know what you're going to, how you're going to do what, you know, you're doing something extraordinarily difficult. That's the only way you can do it because they have no idea what it's going to cost them to do. Mm -hmm. um, but with this one, because of the fact that we've built some telescopes that are similar to this, we know how to do that. I would do that. I would pick sort of the 10 best people in the world. Mm. We all know who they are. Mm. We would hire them away and we would have, you know, instead of a team of a huge team, we would have the 10 best people in the world, a small team. Mm -hmm. And we would do this. Um, we would build it around a project, not an organ. We're not trying to build an organization. We're trying to carry out a project. That's so you don't, you're not trying to build a legacy of a building and a, you know, a monument to ourselves, that sort of stuff. You're, you're trying to get a project done. And, and you could do this and you can cut the price in, in half or less. You don't have to get parts from every constituency in the you, you Congress. You know who the right contractor is. It's mm -hmm. a company called Ball Aerospace. They built the Kepler Space Telescope hmm. and the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope, which is the first infrared space observatory. Mm -hmm. They're the ones, they're the only ones who could do this. And we said, well, let's go to them and let's, let's go get this done. So I said, Harold, well, that's what we want to do. And he, and he said, you know, sign me up. So then we went to um, a guy named Scott Hubbard, who used to run NASA Ames. He, for, for those who follow NASA, he was also the person who rescued NASA's Mars program. He was what's called the Mars Czar about uh, 12, 13 years ago. So he ran all of NASA's Mars programs. Uh, he's now a Stanford professor. Mm -hmm. Called him up. We met just like, you know, typical Silicon Valley. We met for lunch uh, down at the California Cafe uh, in Palo Alto. Did the same thing with him. I said, Scott, in a perfect world, how would you run this, this program? And he said exactly the same thing as Harold, mm -hmm. because he's had the same experience as me and Harold in these government-run programs. He knew what the inefficiencies were. He said, well, if I could do it, I would hire these people. I would do it. And I said, well, that's what we're doing. He said, sign me up. Hmm. We put together our list of the 10 people, the best people in the world, and we hired them all. Um, that process only took a few weeks. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the, 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 the sales to each of them was essentially the same. Hey, this is how we're doing it. And, they, and every single one of them said, I want in. And so, you know, the, this mission of saving the world and doing things the way you've always wanted to do them, it was kind of irresistible to these guys. Well, another thing that happens when you go public with something like this, it has a certain dazzle factor. Uh, people hear about it, and some interesting people just show up. Have you had any of those? What do you mean by interesting people? <laughs> people with a uh, you know, $20 million check or uh, people with skills or contacts or Rolodex or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the organization is going to take a lot of different things besides just building a spacecraft. We are raising funds. Mm -hmm. We are spreading the world, word. We have a couple of our folks out here who are help, you know, who are the ones who, who get the word out on what we're doing, which is critical. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and just keeping the organization running. And, you know, and they're, they're down here. They're, they're all over the place. Um, and uh, so we have some really great folks. Um, I'm really proud of the team because we're, we're small and we're focused. Do you ever have the phenomenon of when people hear that this problem can be solved, they sort of uh, relax because they figure it has been solved? Yeah, there are people who think that NASA already has this under control. And all I have to do is show them the videotape of the congressional hearings with the head of NASA saying, uh, nope, we didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and saying, well, the B612 Foundation is going to do that. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I can't stress enough how much of, 
I consider heroes the folks who, did st who are stepping up and being donors. Mm -hmm. um, because they're the folks who say, well, you know, I could let somebody else do this, or I can do it, or, or I can just step up and, and, and solve this problem. Because, you know, this is, this is the crux of the issue, right? It's sort of the converse of the, um, the, uh, the tragedy of the commons, right? Or the inverse, I don't know what you want to call it. But when it's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility, mm. right? And, you know, this is something also for the oh, Long Now Foundation, right? When, yeah. when something is everybody's responsibility, who's going to get it done? And that's where you require the, these heroes to step up and say, you know what, I'm just, you know, I have been lucky enough to, um, you know, have made some money in, in, during my life, and now I want to just make this happen. And those are the people making it happen. We're just the ones spending it. <laughs> See, I hadn't thought of this as a tragedy of the commons kind of deal, but it really is. And it, it's an interesting one because it's not only space, but also time. And, and yeah. this weird discounting of the future phenomenon yeah, that And occurs. think about the over cost, overall cost of it, too. You know, in what global world-changing problem can you solve? I mean, just completely put to bed and solve mm -hmm. for the cost of building a, like a, a freeway overpass. Mm -hmm. Right, and it is right. Well, I mean, uh, oh, it's way less than the Bay Bridge. I heard somebody say that, right? Uh, you know, um, it's it's probably the cost of the repairs on the Bay Bridge, right? Uh, you know, what, to fix what they screwed up, right? But uh, um, you know, literally, you know, if the city of San Francisco can build a, you know, that that Devil Slide uh, tunnel project, mm -hmm. which costs way more than saving the Earth, then why can't we? Go to the citizens of the world and just do it. Let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.